Heavenly Father, we thank You for all the blessings that You've given us. And God, I pray for those today who come who may have struggles. Father, who may need to come to a saving knowledge of You. Lord, for those who uh, have been uh, attacked and hurt by the throes of life, Lord, I pray for a supernatural strength of encouragement today. Lord, I pray that this morning... You would grant grace and favor to us as, Lord, we continue in the process of worshiping, of reading Your Word, of, Lord, uh, listening and hearing from You. So, Lord, we invite You to speak to us this morning. And I pray that You would open the eyes of our heart. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The life of Joseph. We'll be studying the life of Joseph, finishing up the book of Genesis over the course of the next several weeks. Uh, for the last couple of years, we've been in and out of Genesis, and so we're going to finish it uh, in this series. As we look at the life of Joseph, I, I think there are many things that we can glean. And if you want to talk about one major word, I'd say it would be character. I mean, Joseph's in that situation that we all find ourselves in at some point or another. How in the world did I get here? How did I end up here, and how in the world are, am I going to get out? How are things ever going to change? And what's interesting for Joseph, for the vast majority and for the uh, large majority of the points, it's simply decisions that others have made that affect his life. It is because of the jealousy of his brothers. It is because of the sin of others. It's because of his righteousness in certain instances that he finds himself in these incredibly painful and difficult situations. Maybe you can relate to that. Sometimes we make decisions that are detrimental to ourselves, but sometimes other people make decisions that cause great detriment to us. And in this particular case, that's primarily what has occurred in Joseph's life. I mean, it's almost kind of a comedy of errors. You know, you see things look like they're going to be good for Joseph, and then they turn out bad. And it just seems like that just keeps happening. I mean, you know, it starts off, Joseph is favored by his father. Well, that seems like a good thing. But then his brothers are jealous. That's a bad thing. Then his father gives him a a nice coat. Well, that's good, but uh, then they want to kill him because he has a coat. That's bad. And then, you know, he is given, the coat probably symbolizes some type of authority and the blessing that he's received from his father. But then because of that, they throw him in a pit. Well, that's bad. Well, then there are some folks that come along. They pull him out and, and sell him. And they pull him out of the cistern and save his life. That's good. But they sell him into slavery. That's bad. Well, then he's in slavery. Then he's bought by Potiphar as a slave. That's bad. But then he rises to the top of the slaves or of the servants, and he's given uh, command of all in Potiphar's house. Well, that's good. But then Potiphar's wife comes, and she seeks to have relations with him, and he resists her. That's good, but then she says that he attacked her. That's bad. And he finds himself in prison. So here he is in prison. And he's in prison, and he meets a couple of guys who've worked in the king's court, seemingly a good thing, and they tell him about dreams they've had. He interprets those, and one of them good, one of them bad. The one that things work out well for, the wine taster, uh, says, hey, I'll remember you. That's good. But then he forgets that's bad. Then a couple of years later, which is very bad, uh, he discovers finally that the king is having dreams and the cupbearer remembers him. And so they pull him out of prison. He interprets the dreams 
and eventually you know the story. He is elevated to second in command of all of Egypt. So it just seems like, you know, I keep making these good decisions, and then I get kicked in the head. And most of the time I'm getting kicked in the head because I'm making good decisions, which just goes to prove that just because you're good and you do everything right doesn't mean that difficulties and suffering will not come into your life. Sometimes we suffer because we're righteous. We can see literally uh, tens and twenty of people who suffered because of their righteousness if we look at the life. Job, that's true. Certainly the life of Christ, the life of Paul. We see it in the life of Daniel. People who stood for righteousness, who stood for their convictions and their principle, yet they endured great peril because of it. Interesting, interesting take on it, isn't it? Well, I want us to read one verse in the New Testament before we go to Genesis 37. In Romans 15, verse 4. Romans 15, verse 4. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. If not, there's a Bible under the seat. Uh, the, the bigger ones have the Old Testament in it, which we'll be looking at in just a moment. And the, and the smaller ones simply have the New Testament. If you need one, you're welcome to take that Bible home with you if you don't have one. But in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, the Bible says this, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. Everything that was written in the past, and you could even more properly translate this, the Old, the Old Testament writings were written to teach us so that through endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. These stories, these narratives, these true accounts of individuals in the Old Testament, they are written to teach us. The Bible tells us, Paul is speaking here in Romans chapter 15, so that through endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Through endurance. Certainly, we will see that Joseph must endure. And each of us has to endure the road that we have been placed on, the path that we have been instructed to follow. But not only that, there is hope for those of us who trust in God Almighty. You see, the fortunate thing for us as believers is that God can transcend the happenings and the occurrences of our life. God's promises, God's purposes can transcend the occurrences and the difficulties and the sin and the unfairness that we encounter in life. It doesn't have to polarize us. It doesn't have to capture us. It doesn't mean we won't endure, though. Turn with me back into the book of Genesis. And let's look at Genesis chapter 37. And as we look at this book, we'll see this story is probably the largest story of any character, particularly in, the new, in, the, uh, in Genesis, but really much of, much of the Old Testament. We see 14 chapters devoted to the life of of Joseph, far more than any other character uh, in the book of Genesis. And so we know there's a message here that God wants us to receive. And I also want to show you the picture of the Messiah, the, the typology. We, we've talked about typologies before, but typologies are simply this. Uh, they're foreshadowing of a much clearer picture that is to come. In other words, there is, there is a purpose that is meant when Joseph encounters what he is going through. But God, in His omnipotence, 
in His omnipresence, in His omniscience, He is able to use that picture even in a greater manner, in other words, to foreshadow what is still yet to come. So in other words, we see things that happen in Joseph's life, and later we'll see the same things that occur in the life of Jesus. They're typologies. They're foreshadowings. This is what's occurring in the life of Joseph, and it's very real and very present. But we also can see a picture of the Messiah. You see, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible a central theme of the Bible is there is a Messiah coming. There is a Savior coming. And we see that's true in the life of Joseph. And we see certainly the picture of the Christ that is to come. Let me give you some examples here. I have about 13, but the last hour started to glaze after a while, so I might not share all 13 with you, but... Both were loved by their fathers. We see it in Genesis chapter 37, and then we see it in Matthew chapter 3. As Jesus was baptized, and we see in chapter 3, verse 17, the Father, the voice of God speaking, says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We see that both are shepherds. Just as Joseph is a shepherd, Jesus refers to himself as a shepherd in John chapter 10, Verse 11, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. Both were sent by their fathers to their brothers. Joseph was sent to his brothers, so as Jesus was sent to his people. And he says in John 1.11, He came into his own, and his own received him not. Both had robes that were taken from him. We know that Joseph's robe was taken for him from his, by his brothers. And then we see Jesus' robe being taken away from him in John chapter 19, verse 23, when he's on the cross and the soldiers took from him his robe and they gambled for it. And it actually says that this fulfilled the Scriptures. Fifthly, we see that both were sent to Egypt in their youth. We know that Joseph was sold as a slave to the Midianite clan as they came caravanning through the area. And we know that Jesus, in, as he was still a very young boy, is forced to flee to Egypt because of Herod's edict to kill all the baby boys. We see that both were sold for the price of a slave. Joseph is sold as a slave by his brothers to the, to the Midianites, but uh, or excuse me, uh, to the Ishmaelites, and there's a lot of controversy over that. I won't go into that. But nevertheless, what, what was the group uh, that he was actually sold to? But we also see Jesus being sold by Judas for 30 pieces of silver, which was the price of a slave. We see 20 pieces during Joseph's time was the price of slave, and then because of inflation later on, uh, 30 pieces of silver, Jesus is sold for the price of a slave. Both were falsely accused. Joseph is falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And we see that Jesus, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 59, that the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witnesses against Jesus to put Him to death. Both were delivered over to the Gentiles. We see Jesus being delivered in Matthew 27, the Bible says, and He was bound, and they led Him away and delivered Him to Pontius Pilate. Both were placed with two prisoners. One prisoner who would find life, the other one who would find death. We see that occurring with Jesus on the cross 
One, one thief uh, recognizes and receives who Jesus is. The other one denies Him and curses Him and finds death. Same is true with Joseph. They're put in prison. He interprets the dream. One prisoner is elevated back into authority in the king's court. The other one is killed and dies and loses his life. Both were exalted by God after a time of suffering. Both were sent by God to save His people. Both forgave those who wronged Him, just as Joseph forgave his brothers Jesus while He hung on the cross. In Luke chapter 23, He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We could continue. There are actually several more, but you see the picture. You see the typology. You see the foreshadowing of the Christ who is to come. Have you ever been in that situation, though, that Joseph then... How did I get here? Where am I going to end up? How am I going to get through this? I was reading the story this week of a young girl who was raped in uh, Great Britain. And she tells a story of how she had always been pro-life. But on her way home, she was just a a 15-year-old girl. There were some older teenage boys that grabbed her and, and raped her. And over a month later, she finds out She's pregnant. Now, all of a sudden, she has to decide, what did that conviction mean? Her father and her brother says, why don't you go ahead and get an abortion? I mean, God would understand in your circumstances. Her mother said, you know, I would ask that you not, but I'm going to leave the choice with you. And this young girl decides that she will live by the convictions that she had. And the important thing was is that she had these convictions before the event happened, not after. You see, just like the life of Joseph, once... The terrible events happen to us. It's too late for conviction. If we haven't already determined what we value and what principles we live by. And so she decided to have the baby. And they were interviewing her uh, a couple weeks ago. And she she said, you know, I'm so thankful that I made this choice. And every time I see my baby, I think, God, thank you for allowing me to keep my baby. I, I didn't want the horrible sin and the horrible tragedy of what someone else had done to affect the life and the joy that I can experience now just because of how it occurred. Boy, that's a major conviction. And Joseph shared a similar fortitude, a similar set of convictions, because we will find him over and over again encountering situations where it would be easy to take the short road out, but yet he stands for his character He stands for his faith. And, you know, in Genesis 39, there's a phrase in verse 2, and we see this all throughout Scripture. matter of fact, it's probably one of the most uh, quoted statements, uh, most recognized statements, and most uh, consistently given statements of all the Bible, and it's this. And God was with Joseph. We know that Emmanuel means, and God is with us all throughout the Scriptures from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And God was with him. And God is with us. We see that theme over and over and over again, that omnipresence of God. And Joseph determines to live by his faith and to believe that God is with him, even in these horrible circumstances. So we'll see that God is omniscient, We'll see that God is omnipotent, but He's all-powerful. Omniscient means that He is all-knowing. He knows 
what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen. He is omnipotent and that He is all-powerful and has power to take what we have done for evil or what others have done for evil and use it for good, and He is omnipresent. He is always there. Read with me in Genesis chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in a land where his father had stayed, in the land of Canaan. And this is the account of Jacob. You'll remember Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the son who went and tricked his father into giving him the birthright and then later on has to leave and goes and lives with his uncle Laban, finds a wife there and Laban's daughter, Rachel. He marries, or he thinks he's working seven years for her, but then he kind of gets the switcheroo on him where he gets Leah and then he works seven more years. So now he's gotten two for the, well, for the work of two. And uh, he has both wives and he is the father. His name is changed to Israel. And of course, uh, this is the Jacob we're talking about here. And we'll see Jacob doesn't always make wise decisions, but nevertheless, God chooses to use Jacob. And this is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17. What's interesting, we're going to see the life of Joseph. We don't really learn a whole lot more about his other brothers. We'll see some uh, bad things about Reuben and about Judah that uh, we see in chapter 35, how Reuben had actually chosen to uh, take his father's concubine after his mother's death. And we don't know why. Was it a fit of hormones or was it because he did not want her to become the favored wife because his mother was Leah? Uh, We're not sure. Or was he even trying to expedite the process of the blessing of his father? Uh, We don't know. But nevertheless, he is removed or is not given the faith of his father. He no longer receives the blessing because of that sin that occurred in 35 And Joseph, a young man at 17, he's only 17 years old, yes, he already has these convictions, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. So the Hebrew seems to indicate that Joseph has some authority here. And we'll notice that he receives a coat. And this coat is probably a picture of the authority and of the blessing that he's received from his father. And his brothers don't like it, as you can imagine. And we'll see Jacob seems to make the mistake of favoring a child and and making it painfully obvious. There's a good lesson. There's another sermon for another day on the importance of treating our children uh, with at least the same respect and the same blessing. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other sons, in case you're wondering if that was the case. It just plainly states it. Because he had been born to him in his old age, and he had made him a richly ornamented robe for him. A robe that has great ornaments on it. So we don't know if the robe was dyed, dyed with different colors or it simply had woven into it different colors and different ornaments. But what we do know is what is stated right here before. It says that he was the son of his old age. He was the son. Remember I told you that there was a wife that he had gone and he had met that he had primarily worked for? That was Rachel. And Rachel wasn't able to have children until later on in life. So this is the child Rachel right here uh, has had. And matter of fact, uh, she is, it is her first and she only has two sons. She dies after the uh, birth of her second son. But this is the wife and now this is the son that he favors. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him 
and could not speak a kind word to him. You know, Jacob really put Joseph in a pretty bad spot. It wasn't enough that he favored him, but that it was just so painfully obvious that everybody recognized it. And, hey, I'll put a coat on you just to make sure everybody sees it. Okay, one of authority. We see that none of the other brothers have a coat of this nature. And, again, it also probably portrayed a spirit of authority and of blessing as well. Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers, they hated him even more. For he said, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, and suddenly my sheep rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. This didn't seem to help Joseph either. And if that's not enough, hey, I think I'll share my next dream. And he said to his brothers, and and just so you're wondering, there there was really no interpretation needed. Later on, he'll have to interpret dreams, but they don't really need one. And just in case you're wondering, his brother said, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. And then he said, wait, I had another one. You want to hear that one? This is what happens when you favor your child a little bit too much. They think they can say anything. And he told his brothers, listen, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father as well, his brothers, his father rebuked him. And he said, what is this dream you have? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? You know, what's interesting is that Jacob, in fact, had had to bow down to his brother Esau because of his sin. But this will be a whole different manner. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept that matter in mind, much like Mary pondered these things in her heart regarding Jesus. The father didn't totally discount it because he saw something in the life of Joseph and he recognized that there might be some merit to what is being said. But at this point, his brothers hate his guts. I don't know a better way to say it because, well, let's see. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, which is nearly 50 miles away. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, and I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. We see that he's pretty obedient, but we see that probably Jacob still isn't exercising supreme discernment because he's sending him 50 miles away to check on brothers who hate his guts. And I don't know if Jacob just doesn't get it. Is he that old? I'm just kind of clueless. I'm not really catching all these vibes that, hey, all, all the sons hate this other son. I'm going to send him 50 miles off. And not only that, I'm sending him to Shechem. And if we had time, we'd go into the history of how many of the brothers had already killed and slaughtered many of the men of Shechem because they had raped their sister Dinah. Um, I'm going into this land that probably is not the best place for us to go camping. And I'm going to send my son out to check on the rest of my sons. Now, maybe he thought they're they're hitting the bars and they're brawling in there. Let's get them out of there. I, I don't know what Jacob was sending, but it probably wasn't his best moment as a parent in discernment. So he said, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. And when Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? Isn't it interesting? There's a man there that recognizes Joseph. He's probably maybe heard the story of his coat, but that he recognizes him and knows about his brothers. God is with him. And he replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, he said. I, I heard them say they're going to Dothan, another 15 miles. So Joseph went 
after his brothers and found them near Dothan, but they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Now, they probably recognized his coat, and this is how much they hate him at this point. They're plotting to kill him. Here comes the dreamer. In case you're wondering how they felt about those dreams, that probably just kind of put them right over the top. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come now, let's kill him and throw him to one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hand. Let us not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern in the desert, but we don't have to lay a hand on him. And Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So they see him coming and they're plotting to kill him. I don't know if they're going to cut his throat or where they're going to do it, but they're plotting to kill him. And Reuben, remember the one who's lost the blessing, the one who is the oldest son who normally would have received the blessing and the favor of the father, who's lost that? We don't know if Reuben at this point is repentant. We don't know if Reuben has uh, recognized, hey, you know what, I am kind of the lead here. And Reuben probably, to some extent, has been trained like his brother Joseph. Now, the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah probably, who they were pagans, they probably did not receive the same type of instruction from their mother that Leah and Rachel gave. But for whatever the reason, Reuben has at least some morality. He at least has some principle about him. And he said, let's just throw him in this cistern. Let's don't kill him. And he basically suggests, let's let the elements kill him, but let's don't lay a hand on him. And the Bible says he has intentions of probably rescuing him later. So they agreed to do that. And so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe that he was wearing, and they took him and they threw him in the cistern, which is probably anywhere from 12 to 30 feet. They would build these cisterns, these wells, so to speak, out of the ground, out of rock, and they would go anywhere from 12 to 30 feet so that they could catch rainwater in this arid area of geography that was... Water was often very sparse. And so after this time, in verse 25, they sat down to eat a meal. Okay, let's see here. We're going to, we've stripped him of his robe. We throw him in here, and we're going to let him die. Hey, I tell you what, I'll give you this mutton sandwich for that piece of cheese. I mean, there's not a lot of conviction. There's not a lot of remorse. And we say later on in the book of Genesis that Joseph certainly was crying out to him because they even say that when they go before Joseph later on, when they're, they're finding out that, uh, that they're uh, going to be punished for a sin that they did not commit. Benjamin certainly did not commit. They talk about, did not, did not the voice of our brother cry out to us? Uh, so Joseph has certainly been crying out and pleading with them. They continue on. And they sat down to eat, and they looked up and saw a caravan, of, a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh. They were on their way to take them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. See, Reuben's gone, so Judah basically says, Let, let's save his life. Let's, let's sell him, and let's at least get some money for him. And so they listen to Judah, Judah who would have been the next oldest, and they agree. 
And so they sell him. You know, what's interesting about Judah is if you remember, uh, Judah later on will speak out in favor of his son Benjamin or his brother Benjamin and says, and take his place and say, hey, I'll take Benjamin's place. If something was stolen, let me pay the penalty, but do not take Benjamin from us. Let him go back to my father. I will take his place. Now, what tribe did Jesus come from? The tribe of Judah. We see Judah here speaking out and, and, some, and in some senses saving his life. And later on, we see that he is willing to atone. He's willing to cover for his brother's life. See the typology there? We continue on in verse 28. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers. The boy isn't here. Where can I turn now? I've already broken my father's heart one time. And I being the oldest, he's probably in charge. And then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped it in the robe in the blood. And they took the ornamented robe back to the father and said, We found this! Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. Not our brother, but your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It's my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him, and Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning I will go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. And meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. You know, it's also interesting. Do you remember how Jacob deceived his father by taking a goat and putting the goat skin upon his, upon his arms and he deceived his father into giving him the blessing? What's occurring here? You see how the sins pass down to the next generation? I'm wondering if Jacob, even in his arrogance at some point, said, now, now boys, you, you should never do this and this was bad that I did this. But, you know, let me tell you how I got the blessing when I was about your age from your father. This, this is what I did to Isaac. Now, I shouldn't have done it, but it, it's kind of funny now that I think about it. And he tells him the story of how he probably deceived his father. I'm wondering if maybe they thought it was okay now to deceive their father, who had deceived his father. You see how sin breeds sin, how deception breeds deception. And now Jacob is paying an incredible price for the sins of his past. What about you? You found yourself in situations where, you know, it would be easier to just be deceptive. Why don't I just take the easy road out? Yes, these are some things I have convictions about, but you know, it just seems really difficult now, and I think everyone would understand. Interesting, isn't it? We see in these chapters the omniscience, though, of God. Even though in spite of the sins of the brothers and the Father, God knows. His omnipotence, His power, 
in which he is able to interject and intervene if necessary and spare the life of his servant Joseph and his omnipresence. That he is with Joseph, even though Joseph continually encounters great persecution and great pain from making good choices. Ultimately, his life is spared. Ultimately, God uses everything in his life in order to put him in a place where he can save his family and save himself. I read a story this last week in the BBC. Matter of fact, I initially saw it somewhere else. It was one of those stories you hear sometimes and you wonder if they're true. So I went back and researched it and found that it actually was true. But uh, it was in Ethiopia, and there was this young 12-year-old girl who was kidnapped out of her village, which is not that uncommon by some men. And they were going to make a wife out of her for, for one of the other men, basically a slave-slash-wife. And uh, the police had been pursuing these guys for, for a couple of days, and they were going through the jungle, and the girl's crying out and screaming. And these Ethiopian lions hear these screams, and they are attracted, and they come. And basically what happens is they chase the men off, and they just stood... Uh, and then they stood not far from where this girl was so that the, the men never returned back. And later on, the police come. And when the police get there, the lions leave. Now, when I heard that story, I'm thinking, well, is that true? So I, I went back on the uh, Internet for the BBC and, and researched it. And sure enough, it was true. And some of the lion experts were saying, well, what probably occurred was there were two theories. Number one, what may have occurred is that the lions thought, okay, we're going to eat this girl ourselves later. But that didn't explain why they waited. Or, number two, what some of the experts probably thought is probably her screams and cries probably sounded like that of a cub. And they thought predators were attacking the cub, and so they came and chased those guys off. Nevertheless, however it occurred, when the police got there, the lions left, and the girl was spared. Now, she still endured trauma. She still went through more than any child should ever experience. But her life was spared, and she was returned to her family. You see, God has the omnipotence even in a situation where there's no one to hear the voice. There's no one to hear the cry. God is still there. And He still is in control. So those questions are fair ones for us to ask. Can God's promises transcend our situation? It certainly can. What man means for evil and others mean for evil, can God use for good? He can and He does. And in the end, if we are faithful to God, we'll be blessed. It doesn't mean that we won't endure hard situations, persecution. Sometimes even we see those who endure death. But in the end, God is sovereign. He reigns. And those who are faithful will be blessed, either on this earth or in eternity. God is faithful, and His ways will not be thwarted by our sin or the sins of others. You see, before the birth of a child, there's the pain of childbearing. Before there was a resurrection, there was a cross. And before there is life, there is death. There's then, there's now, there's always. But God is always present, He is always powerful. And He always knows God is with us. And that's a prayer and that's a promise that we can count on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this time this morning. Thank You that 
While we were yet sinners, You died for us. Thank You, God, that You are with us in spite of our circumstances, in spite of whether we understand it or see You or can feel You. You are there. And God, for those who don't know You, I pray that You would draw them today. And for those, Father, who are wondering about Your presence, about Your power, who are suffering through difficult times and situations, I pray that You would remind them that You are there that you are with them. God, I pray this morning that you would speak words of hope and encouragement. Though they may not be taken out of the valley, they can know that you are there. Even in the valley, in the shadow of death, in the shadow of evil, you are there. Thank you for this time. And thank you for your presence. In your name I pray. Amen.